boxes in the sun. I'm supposed to get it and ride and done. Mm-hmm. All the tired horses in the sun. I'm supposed to get it and ride and done. Mm-hmm. All the tired horses in the sun. I'm supposed to get it and ride and done. Welcome to episode 12 of the George Sanders Show. This show is dedicated to a man named Will, who's getting married this week. He doesn't listen to the show, so he'll never know, but uh, Will likes horses, and he likes horse racing, and he's a friend of Sean's, so you can you know this guy's trouble. So tying in with his wedding, for some godforsaken reason, we're going to be talking about two films centered around horse racing. Uh, Carol Ballard's uh, 1979 film, The Black Stallion, and Stanley Kubrick's film from 1956, The Killing. Uh, We'll also be discussing the career of uh, Stanley Kubrick. We've got a bunch of news this week for once, and uh, picking our Cinema Central film, Animal. With me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hi, Sean. Hello, Mike. We're 12 episodes in, and we're already out of ideas, Mm -hmm. so let's do a show about horses. Let's do it. You know, I'll bet this is the most valuable piece here. It's Bucephalus, the magic horse of Alexander the Great. A long time ago, this king was going to kill Bucephalus because he was so wild the king couldn't ride him. He had Bucephalus brought into a big arena, and people came from all around because they wanted to see this horse that was the biggest and the blackest and the strongest, the most beautiful horse that ever was. King Philip goes walking out there. And he looked around at some of his men, he said, kill that horse. Just then a voice called out from the edge of the crowd. I said, I can ride that horse. Everybody looked around, they said, who said that? Looked over and it was a little kid, just about your size, just about your age. And King Philip looked over and he said, son, if you can ride that horse, you can have that horse. So Alexander walked out into the big arena, and standing in the middle of the arena was Bucephalus. He was big, and he was strong, and he was tall on the ground, and there was fire in his eyes, and there was smoke coming out of his nose, and, was... and Alexander walked up, and then quick as a cat, he jumped up on his back. And he grabbed hold of that long black mane, and boom, boom, and away they went, just like lightning. And he jumped right over the crowd, all the way over the stand, and went riding out over the hill. Everybody said, Smoke coming out of his nose. Fire in his eyes. Fire in his eyes. Well, that's the way I heard the story. 
All right, that was a clip from The Black Stallion, a movie which is one of the very first movies I ever saw. I remember seeing it in the theater. Uh, I don't know if that was when it initially came out in 1979, because I would have been three years old. It may have been like re-released a couple of years later. But I have I have very distinct memories of, of seeing this movie as a very small child. And coming back to it, you know, over 30 years after seeing it for the first time, that experience of watching it is very much the same just because of the way that it's made. And, and I think, I think it's a, a really great movie and I loved it as a four year old and I loved it now. So, uh, I'm really anxious to find out what you thought of it, Mike. And <laughs> so you'll tell me what you thought of it and then we'll talk about, you know, the actual like plot and what, what's it's about and everything. Okay. Well, I'm going to be really annoying and say, it's okay. I give it a solid three out of five stars. Um, I don't have that attachment that you have to the film. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's why you liked it, um, seeing it again. I felt like I had, should have seen this at some point, because I, I feel like it's a rite of passage to see The Black Stallion. But watching it, I was like, I don't remember any of this. So either I did see it and it made zero impression on me, or I just had never seen it before. Um, so... You know, them's the breaks. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> well, what it is, it's it's a it's a very kind of impressionistic story about a, a young boy who's in a shipwreck in 1946, and he lands on like this deserted island with a black stallion, and he and the horse kind of slowly get to know each other and get along, and then they get rescued and go back. He gets to go back home, and then he gets Mickey Rooney to help him train the horse, and then they run in a race. Yes. And that's pretty much the plot. But the movie is is much more about just kind of the the sensation and the and the childhood experience. And the way that uh the movie it, it kept reminding me of a couple of movies again. It's uh the the first one is The Tree of Life and the early sequences in The Tree of Life from the kids' point of view where you just kind of see flashes of memories. That's a lot of of how the story is conveyed in in The Black Stallion. It very much takes the boy uh Alex point of view with things and and it's like he is remembering it in bits and pieces uh it becomes a, a little more coherent later on but it's still just kind of really kind of quickly cut and, and impressionistically shot uh the other movie it reminded me of was one that we talked about a few weeks ago on the show and that's wally and that's because the so much of the movie is very little dialogue it's it's uh there's hardly any talking at all throughout the whole film. That clip we played is probably the the most words in any scene in the entire film. Yeah, I think that's I I think that's one of the strengths of the film uh, is is the lack of dialogue, particularly in the long stretch where it's just uh, Alec and the and the horse on the on the beach. Because later in the film, when Alec does have to speak, he's really not that great at delivering his lines in my opinion. Uh, well, I think I think that's something about the character. I think I, I think he the boy uh is really quiet because he stutters. I think that's performance. I don't think that's a problem with the actor. I I I I understand. I I, I see kind of that, but you it was You stutter too. Yes. <laughs> but it's uh but it seemed to be like from scene to scene. Um and I I don't know if I really bought it as it as it was. Um to me the the movie is great in that first 45 minutes on the beach in, with the island. It's like this this 
mashup of Life of Pi and I don't know uh, what was that Brooke Shields movie Blue Lagoon. Right. <laughs> it's like a, it's like those things. You know, I really enjoyed that part. And when it gets when he goes back home, it I kind of totally lost interest in it. Um, for all of the Mickey Rooney horse racing training stuff, I was just kind of checked out. I don't like horse racing. Um, you know, I have my my veganism, <laughs> and it kind of annoys me. But um, so that whole stuff. Although the movie does uh, kind of redeem itself with the final scene with the race, I think the the race itself at the end is is really um, well done. Like cinematically, it looks really great. The camera's really fluid. Um, my favorite thing about this movie, though, is the music. I think the uh, the orchestral score is just awesome, and it's uh, and it really it dominates the film. Oh yeah, absolutely. It runs, it runs throughout and in place of of dialogue. And it's very different from section to section. Um, you know, it so there's like a twangy kind of like country you know tone yeah, to it like later on in the film, and then, early in the film there's like a Middle Eastern vibe because the horse is is uh, an Arabian horse, and yeah. they're in North Africa or. Italy, somewhere in the in the Mediterranean, and then there's that the, the song that really hit me. Um, well, actually, there there are two songs that really hit me, or, or pieces of music that really hit me. When uh, he first is able to ride the stallion in the water, um, it's this really overly, <laughs> maybe overly triumphant orchestral thing that it really sounds like this bombastic classical it's piece, like a big like trumpet fanfare. Yeah, or... it's really great. Um, and then at the end. The actual race, two-thirds of the race, you don't hear any music at all, which is really cool. You just hear the you know beating of the hooves mm-hmm. on the ground. But then it goes into when he flashes back to that scene where he's riding the horse on the beach, and they kind of juxtapose that tranquil thing with this you know fast-paced race. This kind of ominous, or not even ominous, but like a drony kind of thing comes on, and then this like you know, calm theme comes over it. And that was super cool. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of really cool scenes. Uh, the, the race that I like best is the one where he's, uh, where he and Mickey Rooney sneak out in the middle of the night and they go to the track in this middle of this pouring rainstorm to show off how fast the horse can be in order to get him into this race. Mm-hmm. And you see, you, you don't see any of the race. Like you, you just see the people watching the clock and the rain coming down and they're, and it's all in dark with the headlights on these cars and the guy who's supposed to be watching the the horse doesn't even get out of his car. We don't see the horse at all, but it just he goes around the track. It's like a mile track, and then he gets back, and the little boy is uh, passed out on the horse. Yeah, he's gone so fast through the rain. Yeah, yeah. There's just just a, a spine tingling <laughs> scene for me. Yeah, it wasn't really spine tingling for me. I mean, it was. A, I think it was an interesting choice to do that, um, for that scene. And it's very evocative. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful way of showing it. Um, I, I mean, maybe that point I had been checked out of the film for so long that it didn't have the impact that maybe it should have. Um, uh, but yeah, I really, it tonally and then, you know, intentionally the tone, like you said, kind of changes once he gets back to civilization and it's less impressionistic and, um, it, it became a little more humdrum for me and I just, yeah, know. he's, uh, uh, in the in the shipwreck, his his dad dies, or is is lost and and doesn't return. So when he gets back home, he's he's got the horse, but there's just kind of this absence in his life that he's kind of using the horse to fill. But it's all unspoken, which it's very kind of emotionally wrenching. I think. I don't think. I, I for me, 
I, that was one of the notes that I actually wrote was, is this kid not sad about his dad? <laughs> like, he, does, he doesn't show, like, he lands on the, and I think part of it is because this movie was geared for kids, and they, I don't think they wanted to show necessarily the trauma that would come from not only being shipwrecked, but, you know, losing your father and all that stuff. And so as soon as he gets on the island, he's incredibly resourceful, which is cool. I, I like that. Well, like he spends like a day and a night huddled in the fetal position crying. Well, but I know, but he, but there's, there doesn't seem to be any lingering ramifications of that until he has that conversation with his mom to get him into the race. And I just, I just felt like it, it, it was, if it was intentionally like undercooked for whatever reason, it just didn't work for me. Yeah, I think it. I think it. It, it sits there under the surface of the story. Like the, there's a great uh, scene in like the one of the first nights back. The the boy doesn't sleep in his room. He sleeps outside in the backyard with the horse. They just brought the horse home and kept him in the backyard. And uh, Terry Gar, who's who plays his mom, comes out and puts a blanket on him, and she talks to the horse, and she's like, "Thank you for you know keeping my son safe. I wish you could have done the same for his father." Yeah, that's like uh, you know, suddenly gets very dusty in the uh, <laughs> in the basement. Uh-huh. When I'm watching that. Terry Gar is great in here. I, I really like Terry Gar. Ter- Terry Gar is not exactly who you would initially cast as a 1940s kind of housewife, but she, I think she she brings a lot to the part. I think she really. Well, I think she brings. That's what I like about her is that she doesn't quite fit that role and so she's got this you know terry garness of the character you know she's she she makes these kind of funny uh looks you know every once in a while that seem very knowing and kind of um not meta necessarily but they kind of exist outside of the narrative right because it's it's such an odd story like her son has been gone and then he brings back this horse and they keep the horse in the yard and and Terry Gar just kind of rolls with it. She, and, yeah, she totally just. And then you know the horse escapes, of course, chasing after the garbage man, and the and the kid is gone again. Yeah, he just leaves another and, day and a night, and and again, she just kind of rolls with it. Yeah, she she doesn't have much to do in the movie. Um, she's you know she's only really in a handful of scenes, but every time she is there, it kind of gives a little life to it um, that it doesn't have otherwise. So, what do you think about Mickey Rooney here? I like him a lot. I I am a big Mickey Rooney fan. Yeah, I, I think the like, the young Mickey Rooney is one of the the best actors of classical Hollywood. Uh, Mickey Rooney was never young, Sean. He's been old forever. That's not true. It's true. He's <laughs> he's always been old. He's uh, fifty nine years old in the Black Stallion. He's ninety two now. Yeah, he's he's still alive, uh, and still still being awesome. He was in the Muppet movie for two seconds. Uh, the the most recent Muppet movie. He's sitting on a bench. Yeah, you know he gets he gets uh, he goes on like the red carpet at the Oscars every year, and every year I get mad because they won't interview Mickey Rooney in order to <laughs> like you know interview some like TV star or something. Right, some, Selena Gomez. Some flavor of the week, whereas yeah. you know living Hollywood history is there, and they don't want to talk to him. That is a shame. But anyway, back to him in this movie. I think he's great. He, I think he's great too. I, I don't disagree. Uh, I like his mustache. Kind of had a little Wilford Brimley going on there. Uh, yeah, and you know, there's there's also there's an unspoken kind of sadness with with Mickey Rooney's character too, because he was a a guy who was a successful horse trainer, and for some reason he stopped, and it's never explained why. 
like Alec just kind of discovers the secret room in his barn that's covered with all of these trophies and saddles and, and plaques. And it's just layered in just thick cobwebs of, of dust. So, you know, it's just... It's, it's like, like Doc Hudson and cars. It's exactly <laughs> what it is. But does not Doc Hudson's past get explained? Well, yeah. Like, eventually we know what we his find out that he is. Loses, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and the Black Stallion leaves all of that absent. Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't pander to the, the kid audience. It just it lets them emotionally experience the the kind of loss and trauma that the characters go through without talking them through it and I I really like that I really appreciate that oh I do too I I just feel like there was you know you mentioned Wally and when we talked about I think when we talked about Wally um, I did talk about how that that first half hour with the lack of dialogue is so good that the rest of the movie kind of dips a little bit in quality once they get to the axiom and all that and that's kind of how I felt with this even though I, I like Wally on the whole more than I like this, um, but you know, I if, if the whole movie was just him on the beach with the horse and it's this impressionistic thing and you know there's no dialogue and stuff, I think I would have liked that movie more than what turns out to be this. You know, it becomes more much more conventional and uh, yeah, you know, you know how the horse race is going to end at the end of this thing, and you know, it, it follows every beat exactly. Yeah, as it it, it ultimately becomes a more conventional kind of kids sports movie. Yeah. But you know, there's that that uh, that dark heart at the center of it. Really uh, uh, makes it work for me as a grown up. Sure. Well, Whereas it, as as a kid, I don't I don't know that I picked up on that at all. I don't even know that I I picked up that the the father died. Well, that's what I, I meant when I said that kid. earlier. Is that like it is so just kind of cast off, um, or if you want to say differently, it you know is just subtly there under the surface. I don't know how you want to say it, but. Yeah, it's it's definitely not something that uh, is prevalent. Yeah, yeah. The cinematography is by uh, Caleb Deschanel, who is Zoe's father, uh, who was uh, one of the great underrated cinematographers of the seventies and eighties. I think he he also did uh, the Right Stuff and The Natural, and he's great at that kind of like. Uh, Terrence Malick esque magic hour golden sunset. It's very warm, very, very warm and pretty and. Well, and it also reminded me, you know, I mean, Francis Ford Coppola, you know, produced this through Zoetrope, and um, it had that look of the the Godfather movies, too, at, at times. Um, and, it, you know, it's that 70s kind of look that, you know... Kind of the rich warm. blacks. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it's very gorgeous. But it's not just, you know, really pretty shots. There's a lot of, of quick editing and, and really kind of chaotic action that you're seeing things from the, the child's point of view. And there's a lot of really interesting point of view shots. There's the, the initial fire on the boat where there's no establishing shot. You're just in it with Alec and it's just utter chaos. Just people running around and the dad disappears and you have no idea what's going on. And then you get tossed into the water and you see like the, the giant propeller but you see it from his point of view, so it's just this kind of piece of metal, and it's just a weird, monstrous thing. And then uh, later on, you know, the the shot you were talking about where he first rides the horse, like that is all seen from underwater. Yeah, it's like see... a grainy Super Eight uh, look to it. Yeah, you, you you see you see his feet in the water, and you see the horse's feet, and it's like they're they're dancing. You don't really know what's going on, it, but it's just this long, long shot of of feet in water. And then eventually he gets up on the horse, and and when they start riding, then you come out on the surface. So it's, I think it's a a, 
a really a kind of audacious approach to a, a kid's movie for today, let alone for, for 1979. Like, this is a couple years after Pete's Dragon. You know, this is the, the Apple Dumpling Gang era of, of family films. See, that's interesting that you say that, because in a way, I would think it would be more audacious to do something like that today. I feel like kids' movies, on the whole, for the most part, have well, become I think, more I think, conventional. I think it's audacious in any era. Sure, I, I'll agree with you on that, but I, I feel like you could probably get away with that much you know, easier in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s than you could nowadays where everything is so homogenized and, you know, um, you know, except for there are a few outliers there um, currently, but it, it feels, it, it, to me, it feels like a movie, a product of the 70s, you know, kind of explosion. Yeah, it feels more like a new Hollywood movie than like a family movie. Sure. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, the director, Carol Ballard, didn't actually, hasn't actually done a whole lot of work. He, uh... He did like some second unit stuff in, in the 70s, like on uh, Star Wars. His probably next most same famous film is the the follow-up Never Cry Wolf, which uh, is another movie that I saw as a kid that I don't really remember all that well. It's like the uh, the guy with the glasses from American Graffiti living with wolves. <laughs> That's pretty much all I remember about that it. That sounds but it, awesome. But it, it's, a, it's a similar kind of like a impressionistic kind of nature movie about like a human living with animals. Those are the only, those are the only things I, I've seen from him. I've, have you seen I anything other than this? I, yeah. I, he did great second camera work on Star Wars. <laughs> but no, I mean, looking at his filmography here, it looks like he's kind of a, hey, he's a one-trick pony. Uh, <laughs> you know, his most recent film is from 2005. It's called Duma, uh, and it's about a, an orphan cheetah who hangs out with some kid. I think we played that at the Metro, and, it, and I don't think it did well. Yeah. Well, but I don't know. I Black Stallion, though, I I think it's terrific, and Mike thinks it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> With that, we're going to listen to uh, the Melvins because, of course.
Okay, that was the song Skin Horse off uh, Melvin's 1996 album Stag. Uh, it's been 12 episodes, and this is the first time the Melvins have appeared on the show. Um, they're my favorite band ever uh, of all time. I just saw them last month uh, for the 36th time live. How many times have you seen the Melvins, Sean? I don't know that I've ever heard an entire Melvins song. Okay, I'm done. I'm out. Um, the Melvins are the greatest band of all time, and it, it takes a little getting used to. You know, the first CD I ever bought, CD, mind you, I had cassettes prior to that. The first CD I ever bought was the Melvins Houdini, because I saw that Kurt Cobain co-produced it. You know, he was friends with the band and what have you. And I got it, played it a few times, and I was like, yeah, I was trying to find the Nirvana in it, and I couldn't really find it because it was, like, more heavy metal. Uh, and I kind of put it away. You know, I was, I was pretty young. I was, like, 13. I would buy a Melvin's album every once in a while just to try it again, and I was like, yeah. But then in, like, 98, 99, like, five years after getting these things, something fused in my brain. Maybe there's head trauma. I don't know what happened. But it all just made sense, and I've never looked back. They're the greatest band of all time. And the reason we're playing them today is they have, uh, they're the only artist I have uh, in my collection that have two songs with horse in the title. They're Skin Horse, uh, which we just listened to. They have another song called The Talking Horse, which we will not be listening to later because I'm going to play another song with, which is better. The first CD I ever bought was, was Forever Your Girl by Paul Abdul. There you go. There you go. Do you still have it? No. Oh, see? I was just listening to Houdini in the car like, uh, I don't know, two or three days ago. So take that, Paula Abdul. We've got a lot of news today, so let's get right to it. First thing we want to talk about, what do we want to talk Oh, yes. Uh, the, this is kind of a, a week or two old, but since we did that special episode last week, it didn't get in the show. But um, Hayao Miyazaki has officially announced his retirement from uh, making feature films. Uh, this isn't the first time that he's done that. He did it famously after making Princess Mononoke, which was um, a very laborious film for him. It, was, it, was, it, it tried his patience, and he said after that he, he was going to stop. But, of course, he did not. He made a you know, series of great films after that. But this time, you know, he's in his 70s, and he's, he's getting up there, and these movies take him years to make. So he, he is officially... Uh, done making films. Uh, his his latest film will be opening in the states. I think, I think they're going to try and get it out before the end of the year. Um, here, yeah, I don't know. It's it's playing at, at festivals. So. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I tend to ignore announcements so when people say they're retiring. Like I'll believe when I say it. people say they they're going to retire and then come back all the time. Sure, so, especially filmmakers. Sure. Well, I think with Miyazaki, he I don't have the quote in front of me, but he was talking about how. Each film, it's taking him longer to make because um, he doesn't have the endurance that he used to. And because the thing with Miyazaki, which I think we should note, is that he... Uh, Manuel de Oliveira says, Peshaw. He's over 100 and makes a movie every year. Does he hand draw them? Eh. <laughs> Miyazaki, Miyazaki doesn't draw every cell himself. Miyazaki drew like like 80,000 frames or something of Princess Mononoke himself. And he spends, uh, his quote that I was going to tell you about, you interrupted me, uh, was something about how he, you know, traditionally, you know, when he was doing his earlier pictures, he would, he would do like a 16-hour day at his desk, you know? And he said, since Ponyo, which was his previous film, he's, he's now had to cut another half hour from his, his daily allotment just because he's so, you know, he can't focus that much anymore. He can't, you know, doesn't have the endurance. So, you know, it's a physically tasking job. 
maybe he should learn to delegate. But if he learned to delegate, then it wouldn't be a Miyazaki film, in my opinion. But I, apparently what he's going to do is he's going to focus on the museum. There's the Ghibli Museum in, in Japan. Um, and I think he'll probably still do like short films. I know that the Ghibli Museum, um, one of the selling points of visiting is that they have short films there that they screen that have never been seen anywhere else. They don't release them anywhere else. I'm sure he'll probably do stuff like that. But for all intents and purposes, he says he's done. And I'm sad. Yeah. There's, there's still a whole bunch of Miyazakis I haven't seen yet. Uh, I'm going to be watching them all this fall. We're going to do a, a, a podcast about them sometime in like October or something. What's your favorite Miyazaki of the ones you've seen? Spirited Away. Yeah. Probably. Uh, but I really like the the last two that, that don't have as as big of a, a reputation as the other ones. Uh, Ponyo and, and Howl's Moving Castle I think are really great. Yeah. they're I, Miyazaki to me, I've seen all of his movies and... Uh, they they range from five stars to four and a half stars for me. I mean, there's there's not a bad film in the bunch. And you're right, Howells kind of gets a bad reputation, um, at least from what I've read. And it's kind of funny. I think probably because it came after Spirited Away, which you know, Spirited Away is a, a, you know a monumental achievement. But I I really like those movies as well. I think my favorite, my sentimental favorite is Princess Mononoke, because uh, it was the first one I saw. That's uh, my least favorite. I know it is. It's because you're a jerk. I liked it more the second time I saw it when I when I saw it subtitled instead of dubbed. Oh yeah, oh, not uh, apples and oranges, my friend. Um, but yeah, even his first one, um, the Castle of Cagliostro, which was based on um, a manga, and I think it was made really cheaply. Super fun, but uh, yeah. Anyway, so he's retiring. It's a bummer. Speaking of sentimental things, uh, a friend of ours, Travis, vote posted a thing a few days ago. On the internet about yep. uh, nostalgia and um, in about, particular about Hook and how Hook is a terrible movie and and apparently people he knows think that it's great because they saw it as kids and and so he took them to task for that. <laughs> he did. Uh, Travis is a comedian. He's a writer. He's a very talented guy, um, and he you know he makes some very good points. And I, I think the the real point of the article is that they're kind of they're kind of two camps in regards to, you know, films that you saw as a kid. Um, they're the people that don't want to lose that cherished memory or the feeling of seeing this movie and how it affected them when they were young and impressionable. And then there are people that are like, whatever, I'll I'll watch it again, and if it changes my opinion about it, who gives a damn? Uh, I think that you are of the latter opinion, Sean. Yeah, I you know, I think... I think movies are movies, and, and movies exist out of time, and that's one of their their great qualities is that you can rewatch them again and again and have a different experience every time. Now, uh, you know this is kind of appropriate because we started with the Black Stallion, which was a very nostalgic choice for me. But my experience of watching it isn't isn't tied to that initial experience. There's movies that I loved as a kid that I've rewatched and, and thought were terrible. Like uh, Spies Like Us was a movie I thought was hilarious <laughs> when I was 10 years old and I watched it a couple of years ago and that is a bad movie. Yeah. I, I, I loved Three Ninjas when I was a kid and uh, I, I don't need to go back to know that I was dead wrong on that one. <laughs> yeah. And in the same way, you know, movie movies that I saw when I, when I was younger, I did not like. I've rewatched later in life and, and thought were fantastic. Like, right. like uh, Tokyo Story, the first time I saw it, I thought it was really boring and repetitive and dumb. And the second time I saw it, I thought it was probably the best movie ever. Yeah. 
Oh, and 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 you know sometimes you can like I said last week, um, you know you can revisit something that you saw as a kid, like the Gold Rush, and then see it through different eyes, and it's a it's still a fantastic movie, but it's a different experience. Right, and and the point is not that that you were wrong when you were four years old and saw Hook and liked it. Is or that you are correct when you're 30 years old and, and see Hook and, and see it as terrible. They're both valid experiences of the film, and that's the great thing about films is that they can change as you change. Like uh, when Roger Ebert died last year, a lot of people quoted his his essay on La Dolce Vita, where he recounted how every time he watched it, like every 10 years, he experienced it as a totally different film based on where he was in in. Uh, his personal life and his professional life. And, you know, that's a great thing about movies and to not to purposely not revisit them as uh, our, our friend uh, Kevin was quoted in the article. Uh, anonymously. You just anonymously, outed him. I outed Kevin. <laughs> uh, he was the deep throat of this operation, Sean. Uh, he said that, that, you know, he really loved Chasing Amy when he was younger, uh, Kevin Smith's uh, movie. And he suspects that if he watches it again, he won't like it. So he's not going to watch it again because he wants to preserve that experience. I, I think that's the wrong way to go about things. I think, you know, if... I, well, yeah. I mean, I just don't have the time to go back and rewatch Chasing Amy. Well, that's, <laughs> you know that's, I mean? a, that's a different argument. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, but no, there's, you know, when I saw American Beauty in the theater, what, what was that, 98, 99? 99. You know, I was 18 and I was like, whoa, you know, this movie's crazy, you know. And just a few short years later, I was like, you know what? I think that was probably a little, uh, you know, overhyped there, you know. Yeah. Um, And yeah, you know, do whatever you want, people, really. (laughs) Well, Well, the real question is, though, Sean, what do you think of Hook? (laughs) <laughs> I haven't seen Hook in, in a very long time. Rufio! Rufio! The first time I saw it, which was shortly after it came out, it came out like 91, I think I maybe saw it like the next year on HBO or something, yeah. I thought it was awful. And I was 16 at the time. Yeah. Uh, I saw it again, maybe five to ten years later, and uh, I must have been in like, you know, exceptionally tired or, or caffeinated or something because I got, I got a little teary eyed watching, watching, watching Hook and I haven't seen it since. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have, you know, it's the same thing. I haven't seen it since um, it came out. We owned it on VHS. I watched Hook all the damn time. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, see, I was a bit old for, right. for that. Sure. Yeah. I, I absolutely loved Hook. I haven't seen it since then. Um, you know, reading Travis's thing. You know, he makes valid points, and I'm and I'm sure they're totally true. Um, you know, he he the first I think his first argument was it's an ugly movie, and he he's, shows this screenshot that is just it, it's amazing that Spielberg could have made something that terrible. It's, it's very brown. Yeah, it's very brown and cluttered, and just it's just kind of like vomit or something like that. Um, so you know, I've been thinking about Spielberg a lot lately, and he may be coming up later in the show, but. Um, yeah, I kind of, you know, because he, Spielberg is a director that you kind of, he's with you your whole life because, you know, you see your ETs and your, you know, um, Indiana Jones films when sure. you're young and you, you know, rewatch those too because they're great. Um, and, but then he makes those adult movies too, like Munich and, and, and all that stuff. And, um, he's so versatile. Um, so it'd be interesting to go back and, and, and see these things, um, through new eyes. You know, I'd love to, I'd love to watch, I haven't seen ET since I was a kid. I don't want to. I don't want to see the the altered version. Of oh, I don't either. People don't carry guns. Yeah, 
Well, he he came out and said that was a, you know he apologized for that. Oh, good. Did yeah. He, did he fix it on the the latest? I think the latest one is fixed. I think he he said I, that was a mistake. I, I I should never tamper with my movies or whatever. Well, good for him. Yeah, uh, he needs to talk to George Lucas. But uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, Disney, yes, speaking of Disney, this week it was announced that there's going to be um, a special newfangled screening of The Little Mermaid coming to theaters uh, in a, in a week or two. Um, and I think they're calling it like a second screen viewing or something where families are asked to pay $15 or whatever to go see this movie, uh, The uh, The Little Mermaid, which everybody loves. It's a great film. Uh, And bring their iPads and smartphones and stuff and download an app where you can interact with the movie in the auditorium while it's playing on the screen. And I I cannot convey how upsetting... (laughs) This idea is to me. I think it's a travesty. I spent last year watching every Disney movie uh, feature film, and The Little Mermaid is is really one of the best. And you don't need supplementary stuff to go along with watching a great movie. Yeah, it's incredibly stupid. It's terrible, and I hope it, I hope it's a huge failure, and that it, we never have to speak of it again. Yeah, I'm hoping the the second screen trend dies a, a quick death. Yeah, like this, I, this this whole idea that people need to constantly be stimulated while watching movies because a movie isn't stimulating enough. You need your your telephone or your uh, your iPad there with you to enhance the experience is just is appalling. Yeah, and you know i I love my iPad. I love my laptop. I am constantly on those things. You know, to to my detriment. You know, but. I have the ability to put that away for two hours while I watch a movie. Like, I can't... Anytime that I've ever had to, like, field a phone call or, or, or whatever during the movie, it totally ruins the experience. I hate it. Yeah, this is a, a topic that's come out this week at the uh, Toronto Film Festival, where the screenings for the press are also the screenings for industry people. And Toronto's a big kind of market festival where people are... Um, mom is calling (laughs) hello well you have to keep that in when the phone rings and and say it's my mom and then just hello and then we'll like have like dead space for like a minute uh you're talking about toronto and how it's industry and yeah, this is a, a topic that's come up this week at the the Toronto Film Festival, where the uh, the press screenings and the industry screenings are are combined, and and Toronto's a big like kind of market festival where people are trying to sell their movies. So there's all like these you know distribution company big shots in these screenings with the critics, and all the industry people apparently are constantly like texting and checking their phones and like pulling out their iPads, and so all of the critics who I follow on Twitter are complaining about all of the industry people. So this like this this you know big controversy at Toronto is like why the festival people won't stop people from using their phones. Well, didn't some guy call nine one one on somebody? Did I think, they? Yeah, I think someone called nine one one and said there's a guy using his cell phone in the movie theater or something like that. That that's awesome. Not an appropriate use <laughs> of you know emergency first responders. I know how they feel though. Yeah, <laughs> it's really obnoxious, and even people in the industry. Yeah won't refrain from doing it. Yeah. And it's just something in this culture that's gotten way out of hand, and I can't wait for it to die. I, yeah, I really can't wait for it to die either. Um, I've been really happy with... Um, I've been seeing a lot of movies at the Cinema in Seattle, um, and 
I've, I have not had a bad experience there yet. I've, I've been going a lot um, in the last six months or so. Um, and the audience there is very respectful. There's, there's, I've never seen a cell phone out. But every other time I've gone to a movie in, in and around Seattle in the last year to another theater, inevitably there will be somebody there with their cell phone out or that will be just blatantly talking in the middle of the thing. And it's just mind-boggling. <laughs> I've had reasonably good experiences at the suburban malls around uh, Federal Way where I live. Um, better than better than you would think. There have been like there have been some times that like the discount theater to see Spielberg's uh, Tintin movie was uh, a disastrous experience because it was like a weekend matinee showing. So there was like all of the kids running around and yeah, that that was a that was your fault, Sean. Yeah, <laughs> that was my own fault, but. Uh, but for the most part, you know, even, you know, just going to the mall to see, you know, Django Unchained or something, the audiences are pretty respectful and, and pretty cool, so. That's good. Yeah, when I saw Star Trek Into Darkness earlier this year um, at a small theater um, in Columbia City, there was a guy two rows in front of me who was, <laughs> the movie's going on. And whenever there was an action scene, he was kind of involved. And there's a lot of action scenes. But then there's one scene that's kind of like a pivotal, like, um, dialogue-heavy scene that kind of moves the plot forward. And the guy started going, <sighs> like, this crazy nose thing that he was doing. I think he had allergies or some sort of nasal problem or something. And he was like, <sighs> and it was like, what the heck is going on? I couldn't believe it. And then he whips out his phone and... And he's two rows in front of us, so I see everything he's doing, and, and I was like, is, what is, what's going on here? And I waited a minute or two to see if it was just like, maybe there was an emergency that he was trying to attend to or whatever. Finally, I get up and I lean over, and the guy was browsing cell phones on his cell phone in the movie theater. And I was like, it, I, I tapped him on the shoulder. I've gotten a lot more um, brave <laughs> about confronting people about this stuff. I used to, you know, kind of, be a shrinking violet and hide in the corner and just, you know, kind of fume. But now I get up and I'm like, what is your problem, you know? And he's like, oh, sorry. It's like, yeah. Well, I, I fear that with with film exhibition, we're, we're heading down two different tracks. We're going, going to see a split the same way that we see a split in music, uh, where at a classical music concert, uh, being quiet, and being respectful is very strictly enforced. They even have like ushers in the aisles with cough drops who will like give you a cough drop if you, you know, can't control yourself during the performance. And then you have rock concerts where people show up dressed like anything and, and get drunk and make a lot of noise and check their phones and nobody cares. And I, I fear we're going to see the same thing happen with, with film exhibition. Like we, we already can't have art cinema as a commercial enterprise. It's got to be like nonprofits and museums doing it. It's, I think it's going to go the same way with the audiences, that they're just going to be free-for-alls in the multiplexes and then just quiet places like the Sif Cinema or Film Forum or something like that where, where everyone is really cool. Yeah, the, which for the most part won't affect me that much, except for the fact that there are two or three of those mainstream blockbuster type of movies each year that I do really want to see, but I want to see them in that art house environment, you know? I... I, yeah. I can, look, if I ran a movie theater myself, I wouldn't sell popcorn because the sound of people chewing annoys the hell out of me. So I can't handle any of this stuff. It's really, it's too much. It's too much. Let's talk about something else. 
All right. Let's our, end on a high note. Our last bit of news is, <laughs> is to go back to Toronto, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of reviews coming out for movies that people are seeing at the festival that aren't coming out here until later this year, maybe not even next year for some of the the kind of higher profile uh, um, international movies. Uh, my my question to you is: Do you read these reviews, or do you just tend to ignore everything until it actually comes out in no. the area where you live? No, I I definitely read. I, I at least peruse um, certain you know um, sites and and writers and to see what their opinion is on stuff because you know for example like with Toronto there are the movies that are already on my radar that I kind of want to know at least kind of what the buzz is from people I trust. You know, something, Noel like, or, something like Gravity. Yeah, exactly. Gravity is, you know, like, Gravity is a movie I'm really excited about, but it's not one that, you know, I will pay to see any Coen Brothers movie. I don't care, you know. Um, but Gravity, you know, the enthusiasm around it kind of would help me um, a little bit. But then also, there are all those little movies that I've never heard of. Um, you know, that come through and, and there's always a gem or two that, you know, someone finds and says, oh, you know, people should be focusing on this um, as opposed to whatever the, mo- you know, the new hype thing is or whatever. And so, yeah, I definitely, um, I do follow a few people. Um, I don't do it religiously, but um, I'm not afraid to, to read a plot synopsis. And usually the people that write about these things at the festivals, um, one, they're so harried from seeing three or four movies a day that they don't have time to write a really intense review of it where they spoil anything and secondly they're also considerate and they intentionally don't spoil anything so you know they uh, you know a one paragraph thing saying hey this movie's pretty interesting what's wrong with that most of what i what i get out of out of festival coverage is off of twitter and so i just i just read like the most basic of information like like somebody says you know la ultima pellicula it's really good yeah and I'm like, well, I, you know, I had already gone through the the catalog for Vancouver, and and that was a movie that, you know, looked like something I would want to see anyway. So it's like nice to have that confirmation that sure. yeah, that's good. Uh, but if somebody said it was bad, that probably wasn't going to discourage me from seeing it anyway. And the same thing with like a, a higher profile release that I'm really looking forward to, like a, like a Touch of Sin or the the Hong Sang Soo movie. Like the quality of its reviews at Toronto isn't really going to affect me one way or the other. So I just I just don't bother to read them. Like well, I, I look for the titles to mm-hmm. see what titles people are are talking about. Right. But other than that, I'm not I, I'm not going to read a review of the movie, and it's not because I don't want you know my own impression of the film to be biased, or it's not because I don't want. Uh, anything to be spoiled for me because sure. I don't really care about spoilers at all. It's just that I, you know, I'm planning on seeing most of these movies and if I'm seeing them, there's a possibility that I'll write about them and I don't want to read what somebody else has written because I want to know that, uh, I don't want to know that somebody has already said what I want to say better than I'm going to say it. That's how I feel too. I mean, you know, usually when I write something in, infrequently, <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of go into it fairly cold. At least, you know, if I read something, I I don't have the best memory. I don't remember. Let's <laughs> say if it was like a week before, I don't know what the hell's going on. But no, I definitely, yeah, try and steer clear of that because I don't want an influence on, on that. But let me ask you this. Um, what if there's a movie that you were kind of on the fence about? Like, you you kind of had an interest, but it wasn't something that you were, like the new Hong Sang Soo or something where you would obviously buy a ticket for or whatever. Um, but let's say that the Twitter feed, what I don't know what you call that stuff, um, but, but what if the the Twitter sphere was so 
unanimously against the movie. Like they were just like, this is terrible. Like not just one person, like but the, everybody. Uh, like the the uh, the movie that won Venice last year that that everyone hated. Oh, Pieta. Yeah, yeah. Pieta. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody just hated that movie. I probably would have gone to see it just out of morbid curiosity, <laughs> okay. just because it was so reviled. But yeah, I never I never had the chance and. Really, the only time I have like free reign to see however many movies I can is when I go to the festival because the rest of the time I'm here with the kids and it's like a process in order to get out to to the theater. So I don't do it that much. Like like half of my movie watching for 2013 at least will be in the one week I spend in Vancouver. So at that time, it's more about like the schedule and how many movies can I fit into the day and what is playing against what. And if it's the best movie that's playing at that time, then I will go see it. And the Twitter buzz really won't affect that all that much. Sure. I can dig it. it I mean, it's kind of a case-by-case thing. There are so many movies that I want to see. I mean, I keep bringing movies home and the stack just keeps growing and my girlfriend says... When are you possibly going to have the time to watch any of these things? So if there's something that's, like, so, you know, frowned upon that I was kind of interested in or whatever, I will probably just let it let one pass, you know what I mean? Um, I have, you know, post Brass Lux at home right now, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to like it. <laughs> um, and if push comes to shove, it's probably the one that's going to go back first, but... Yeah, I saw I saw Ray Goddess's Silent Light. Silent Light. I didn't like it. Basically, on the recommendation of our, our friend Ryland, who was, was a, a fan of previous Ray Goddess films, uh, I I didn't really care for it. So I I have well, not, really, he I wasn't the out only of one though. Everybody loved that thing. Manola Dargis loved that thing. Uh, all these people loved that thing, and you know it has a great opening shot. It's fine. It's pretty, but. It was annoying. Anyway, uh, let's talk about We've animals. Far off the subject. <laughs> let's talk about animals. Uh, so tying in obviously with the horses this week, uh, we are picking our cinema essential uh, cinematic animal and uh, cinema animal. Cinema animal. Cinema. 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 Animalists. Did you have any uh, rules that you? Put into this? Uh, no, I, I don't believe in rules. I, I break down <laughs> barriers and, and boundaries. That's right. Uh, it had to be like an actual animal, not like a cartoon animal. That was my rule too. Yeah. What'd you pick? I went with like the obvious art movie film geek. I, I knew it. Choice. I knew it. I'm going Balthazar. with the Balthazar. <laughs> I knew it. From Ozar Balthazar, Robert Brisson's <laughs> film. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it's a great movie and it's... The, it's about uh, the life of this donkey who lives in like rural France and horrible things happen to this donkey. Like it's, it lives in this family and the family has to sell it. And it, it goes through a succession of masters, some of whom are nicer to it than others. And it kind of parallels the story of this girl who loved the donkey when she was young and she grows up and does horrible things too. And, and you know, then it ends. And the interesting thing about, about animals and especially animals in movies is that they're not acting, you know, they're just being animals. And that's kind of like the, the ideal kind of actor for Robert Brisson, who who famously wanted his actors to be as blank and as emotionless as possible to kind of force the audience to project themselves into the character and become, to draw them in to the emotional life of the protagonist because the actor isn't doing it for them. 
and and that is how we relate to animals. We we anthropomorphize them. We we project our own thoughts onto the animals and you know, that's, that's just kind of fascinating to me because it, it's a metaphor for not only how we as humans relate to animals in the real world, but it's also about how we relate to cinema, to images on screen, because, you know, actors aren't actually feeling the emotions that we project onto them. That's part of our relationship with the film. And that kind of relationship is is like it's the heart of acting and it's the heart of cinema. And it's it's just a subject that's really, really interesting to me. And I don't really know what to think about it but seeing it in balthazar makes me curious sure yeah i i I, it's a great pick i mean it's as usual it's obvious for a reason yeah (laughs) because it's good my pick my my pick is i think the film as a whole isn't as good as balthazar and i had a few more francis the talking mule (laughs) yes i had a few more rules that uh that I added along with no cartoons. Cause yeah, if you, if you put cartoons in there, you know, all bets are off. Uh, I wanted an animal that was integral to the story. You know, we all love Einstein and back to the future, but Einstein doesn't have much to do with the plot of uh, back to the future. Um, and then I was thinking about this show and horses and all that stuff. And I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to do it. Uh, so I'm actually going with uh war horse, the, uh, the Steven Spielberg movie, the, the war horse. Yeah. The war horse and war horse. Um, I think I liked this movie more than most people did. I, mean, I think it got it got good reviews when it came out, but it kind of got forgotten pretty quickly. Um, I don't think it's a perfect movie. There's that that middle part with the French girl and her grandpa that really doesn't work for me at all. But goddamn that horse! Like by the end of the thing, I was just in tears watching this horse. Um, the fear in its eyes. I mean, it's, I don't know. How. The, the horses who played the war horse are, yeah. are really good horse actors. They're really good horse actors. And, you know, there's that final scene where he, the horse is running around frantically through the trenches and it's, it's dragging, um, the, the barbed wire. And I mean, you know, Spielberg can make me cry, you know, by filming the phone book, but I mean, I was just bawling by the end of this damn movie, and that horse made a really big impression on me. So I'm going with War Horse. Yeah, I think I think that's a film that's interesting to compare with Black Stallion because it's it's much inferior <laughs> to the Black Stallion. Like there there are great segments of War Horse, and when War Horse is really great, is when it's most Black Stallion like. When the cinematography gets crazy, when you're getting like the point of view of the horse. When, you know, the the final image of the film, when the horse comes home and he's against this, like, blazing orange sky that looks like it's, like, out of Gone with the Wind or something. You know, that those are the, the parts of War Horse that I really like. Uh, the whole long first 45 minutes where it's, like, oh, I like goofy, that part. goofy farm comedy horse. Oh, yeah. I like that when they're it's plowing like, the field and stuff. Yeah, whatever. Uh, the the French girl with the French grandpa. No That's no good. Uh, you know the Benedict Cumberbatch that doesn't really go anywhere. <laughs> that was the first time I ever saw him. Actually, it was in that movie, and he's he has like what two lines in that thing. Or yeah, whatever? It's, it's a waste of Cumberbatch. It's true, I yeah. guess. But, but yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, it's not like I said, it's not the best movie in the world. You know, Lincoln, you know, came out the year after is far far better. Um, and I really actually want to rewatch um, Tintin which came in between those two because um, I, I think that movie is better than I originally thought it was. Yeah, it's a fine movie, but it's no The Black Star. I Okay, fine. 
But speaking of Steve, Steven Spielberg, well, let's talk about Stanley Kubrick. Let's do it. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> Kubrick is our person of the week. He's, he's uh, one of the most famous and acclaimed directors of all time. Do we have anything interesting to say about Stanley Kubrick? Uh, no, probably just reinforcing that he's pretty awesome. Um, for me with Stanley Kubrick, uh, he's one of those directors that I really respect and admire, and I think he's really smart, and, and he makes really great movies. But I don't love his movies. Like, I, you know, there. Are, I mean, I think there are a few that I'm like, this is a solid masterpiece or whatever. But he, you know, he one of the uh, one of the criticisms. One of the standard knocks against Kubrick is that he's he's cold and unfeeling and inhuman and right. misanthropic. Which is what people say about the Coen Brothers too. But I like the Coen Brothers films on the whole more, or, or I like them more fully than I do Kubrick's films. Um, but that's not to say that Kubrick isn't great. I think, I think he's, he's totally, you know, worth all the accolades that he gets and stuff. Um, but I, I, I can't think of a Kubrick film that I just, you know, love so dearly that I, you know, want the poster on my wall or, want, you know, want to live in it or whatever, you know. Um, although 2001 would be pretty cool to live in. Is that which? What's your favorite Kubrick? Uh, I think it's I think it's kind of competing. Uh, I think there are two films, uh, two thousand one, which I probably for a, maybe a lot of people um, I didn't love the first time I saw it. Uh, I think I was too young. I think it was part of it. I saw it and it was definitely an experience, but I didn't quite. I still don't think I totally quite get it. <laughs> but but uh, seeing it a, a few years back. Uh, on Blu-ray, it was like, oh yeah, that's why, okay, I get it, you know, and it's playing, I think I mentioned last week on the show, it's playing at the 70mm Festival yeah. at Cinerama, and damn it, I really want to go to it, I, I mean, that just sounds amazing. Uh, and then the other film, uh, and I'm not going to get into it too much, I think The Killing is actually um, up there, I, th- I think it's, you know, I, I love, you know, Clockwork Orange is great, um, The Shining is really good, but there's something about the killing, and we'll talk about it later in the show. That I think is just it does certain things that Kubrick that didn't do later that I think he maybe should have. <laughs> I, I I really like Stanley Kubrick, um, but I don't I don't love Kubrick. And it's, oh, wait a parrot! What I just said. It's, <laughs> It's very strange. Like I don't, I don't want to follow the party line that he's cold and unfeeling, but that's just kind of how I feel about his movies. They're yeah. just kind of misanthropic, and they're they can be really tough to take. Like I think, I think that's, I think that's selling him a little short, though. I think there's a lot of humor in his movies that that people kind of don't pick up on. You know, obviously in something like Doctor Strangelove, that is a hilarious film. Um, but also, even in like The Shining or Eyes Wide Shut or The Killing, I think is hilarious. Uh, even two thousand one, there's like a, a kind of there's a real dark comedy to Stanley Kubrick. And I think people focus on the dark and kind of miss the comedy at times. That that said, I I like I like all of his movies. I think Clockwork Orange is the most problematic one for me, just because I don't really know how to take it. I don't I don't know what what the point is like i think that i think that is the point of orange i think the point of of a clockwork orange is the fact that it's supposed to be problematic and and make you uncomfortable and question it and 
I, I, I mean, I haven't seen it in, in many, many years, but um, I think that's kind of what it's there for. Yeah, and, and you know, my my that's this is one of those movies that my experience of it changes every time I've seen it. Like there there have been times when Clockwork Orange was my favorite Kubrick film, and and right now it's my least favorite. But uh, I'd probably go with The Shining as as my pick for his best film because I think it's a it's a great marriage of that kind of cold misanthropy with the humor and the genre with the genre elements of the Stephen King story, and it's just such a, a fascinating environment. And I think maybe if I ever get around to seeing Room 237, I won't like The Shining as much, but... I don't think, I don't think so. Uh, why, why do you think that? I just, I have a feeling that those people are going to really annoy me. Oh, but that's kind of the point of Room 237. Like, like yeah, but... it's hilarious how, how ridiculous these people are. <laughs> yeah, but that also I have a problem with. Like, I have a problem with ridiculous people, and I also have a problem with, like, making a film to make fun of ridiculous people. Okay, sure. Um, I, I, I would... Because I, I am a hypocrite. <laughs> sure. No, I understand. I mean, I have my ridiculous theories about things, um, but I, I don't think Room 237, I don't think it deepens The Shining. I don't think it... I think that's what's great about it is it, it, it doesn't affect the shining at all it, it's it's supplementary but it it doesn't it doesn't actually hold a mirror to the shining in at least what the people are saying about it um i i i i think room 237 is what the shining is about um but i don't think that it actually reflects the shining itself yeah and that's fair. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I would like you to should see, see it. I would like to see it eventually. I think what 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 plays it as as cold in Stanley Kubrick is is his film style. It's not so much what the movie's about. Like the movies aren't necessarily misanthropic, but they they seem so controlled and so precise and so uh, exactly what what he wants. And that is a great thing in a filmmaker. You want a filmmaker who pays attention to his craft, but there's something airless about a Stanley Kubrick film. And the, the movies that I, that I love are the ones that have gaps in them for me to enter into. And I don't have those gaps in a lot of Kubrick's. Yeah. His movies are never messy. And uh, I like a little bit of mess or, or a little bit of anarchy to them. Like even, yeah, even something as chaotic as um, Doctor Strangelove feels very uh, mechanical and yeah. um, clockwork. It's clockwork. Um, well, I I think uh, you compare Kubrick to somebody like Alfred Hitchcock, who was also very precise and, and very and very organized and knew exactly what he wanted to do with all of his films. Eyes Wide Shut and Vertigo are ostensibly very similar themes. They're both about a kind of kind of sexual paranoia and, and uh, pathology of uh, a straight, white, middle-class man. Uh, but Vertigo, to me, has, has, you know, mysteries and resonances, and it goes off in all kinds of different directions, whereas Eyes Wide Shut seems shut. It, it seems closed off. Like, there is, you know, one line... That it's that it's going down, and there's one thing that it wants to say, and it may not be explicit. Like it, it you know, it gives some room for audience interpretation for the audience to think for themselves, but it's still only one thing. Well, I think um, I think the difference between the two of them is um, how prolific they were. Like I think with you're right. Like Hitchcock was very exacting what he was doing, but 
he didn't labor for years on each film, which is what increasingly happened with Kubrick. And I think that that led to why it's so hermetically sealed and why every single thing is so thought out. Um, Hitchcock, yeah, he, he really, you know, he, he storyboarded everything. He had everything the way he wanted it. But he'd do it in like six months and then he'd go on to the next thing or whatever. Um, and I think that might be where the difference lies. Yeah, and when, you know, when Kubrick was working within the studio system, he was was working at a much faster pace. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you you look at his filmography, and it's you know he he uh, he was making you know a movie every couple of years or whatever, and then all of a sudden he gets into those half decade gaps, and then you know between Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut, twelve years, you know. Um, well, I think I think that wasn't so much about Kubrick as it was just the the vagaries of film production in the seventies and eighties. It just became increasingly hard for for art filmmakers to make their films like uh, Kira Kurosawa did the exact same thing at the same time as Kubrick even though he's a couple generations older than him his once you get to the, the mid 60s his pace of film production just kind of collapses yeah well and also I mean Kubrick also you know famously you know he he abandoned some things you know there's his Napoleon that right. he spent a long time working on and then ended up you know it didn't it didn't work out um, and have you have you seen that book the uh, the like archives of his Napoleon. It's I saw it at the bookstore. That thing is crazy. <laughs> yeah, like well, Terrence Malick, who spent twenty years not making a movie between Days of Heaven and Thin Red Line, supposedly was working all of the time trying to get movies made. The projects just kept falling through. Yeah, I think part of that was Malick though too. Well, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> he's kind of mercurial. Um, but yeah, uh, no, I, I agree with that. I, I think it was you know. Both the personality of the filmmaker and and circumstantial um, stuff. Well, yeah. with that, do you want to talk about the film that we both really like, The Killing? Yeah, let's hear a clip from The Killing. <laughs> I don't get it, Johnny. About these two other guys. You mean there's going to be two other guys in on the deal? And we ain't going to know who they are? That's right. You don't know who they are, and they don't know who you are. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, I guess so, but I... Makes sense to me, all right. How come we need them, though, Johnny? What are they going to do? Well, one of them's for the job of the rifle. None of you boys can handle that, even if you were willing to. And the other one starts the fight in the bar. These other fellas, how much are they cutting in for? Not that I mind. Anything you do is okay, but... These Where's... men are not going to be in on the basic scheme. They're getting paid to perform certain definite duties at a certain definite time. And they're not cutting in on the take. You'll be paid a flat price to do a straight job. Well, if they don't know anything about the basic plan, about the job, then why are they doing it? That's simple. These boys are straight hoods. They get paid in advance. Five grand for the one with the rifle and 2500 for the other. Well, where's this money coming from? Uh, that's where Marvin comes in. He's getting the 7500 for us, and he gets it back off the top. I wish I could do more, Johnny. It's almost not right for me to get as much as everybody else. After all, all I do is... Your money counts for plenty, Marv. You don't hear any of them complaining, do you? Sure. You're okay in our book, Marv. But look, Johnny, if these two hoods get paid in advance, how do you know they're going to do their jobs? I'll vouch for them. These guys are pros. They can't afford to weasel out on a deal. If they did, they'd be washed up. Okay? Okay. Any other questions? That was a clip from the 1956 film The Killing from Stanley Kubrick. Uh, the film stars Sterling Hayden as this guy who plots a heist of a racetrack along with uh, some men that work at the racetrack, a police officer, and the film is probably most famous for the cutting up of the uh, chronology. It, it's kind of told uh, out of order, uh, especially near the end of it. Um, and it, it's a pretty simple story, uh, told very, very well, and basically they plot this heist, 
things don't go well, and it's fun. What do you think of the movie, Sean? <laughs> I really like it. This is this is only my second time seeing it, and it's it's much quicker, it's much faster than I remembered it being. Like it's I, only eighty four minutes. Yeah, I expected yeah. like a like a two hour Stanley Kubrick, everything is slow kind of thing, because it's been it's been years since I saw it, but. Uh, I loved it. I thought I thought it was it was really funny. It's a very uh, very clever take on a a common Stanley Kubrick theme of uh, free will and and fate and and chance. Yeah, it's and when we were talking about Kubrick um, earlier, that pace of it and kind of the I don't want to say quick and dirtiness of it, but um, working within that genre element of of the caper film and uh, I, I feel like. It, it adds life to this movie that you don't see much, you know, in his later stuff, and 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 this is very exhilarating filmmaking here. Yeah, it it looks it looks like a film noir. There's there's very deep shadows, like um, in the 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 clip we use, Sterling Hayden like spends half the time talking from shadow. You can't see his face at all, and then he comes forward into the light, and and uh, you know, there's a lot of these kind of images that you would expect in a film noir. But it's told with this terse narration in a police procedural style in something like The Naked City, which gives it this kind of documentary feel. And and cut within it are are actual like documentary shots that that Kubrick made at a racetrack. So it's uh, it's it's a film noir, but it has these kind of semi-documentary elements to it that make it feel like a a real world and. And what that does thematically is it, it gives a sense of order to the film. It makes it seem like everything is inevitable and everything is real when the whole plot hinges on just the, the strangest whims of, of chance and, and fate. So it's just it's this kind of fascinating um, blend of, of uh, a philosophical idea that comes through the plot with the cinematic technique that, that counters that. That's an interesting take on that. Um, I I want to go back to what you just said. Um, it's interesting to me watching this um, because, yeah, it it does have the look of a noir, but uh, and this kind of came at the the tail end of the you know noir period. You know, fifty six was pretty late in the game. Um, but watching it for me, it seemed sure it it kind of had these these looks of film noir, but it uh, the way the camera moves in this movie seemed so. Far, far advanced from from most everything else that was coming out at that time. There's, there's definitely it's like a, a middle ground between you know like a, a Jacques Tourneur kind of film noir and what Stanley Kubrick would be doing later because there are these kind of long extended shots and and Kubrick would be famous for his his tracking shots especially when he got uh, got a Steadicam. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's these long sequences and he'll like like track across a, an apartment and you'll you'll go. Through, um, rooms. through through rooms where there there would be a fake wall where you wouldn't see something like that in a in a standard Hollywood film at the time. Yeah, he does it several times, and he also films a lot of scenes um, from like with with furniture in the foreground and with the characters behind that. Like you're kind of um, a fly on the wall, or or, or you know, uh, just peering in through a window or something like that. And um, yeah, to me, it it seemed much more um, in line with uh, visually with stuff that came in the 60s and 70s than it does with the 50s or 40s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, it's definitely a, a transitional film here. And, you know, it, it even goes to, like, the cutting and the, and the framing of shots. There's one 
dialogue sequence where where Elisha Cook Jr. is uh, is talking to his wife uh, Marie Windsor, and uh, what a great pair of actors those are. Yeah, but uh, she's. Uh, she's kind of haranguing him for something. And, and the initial dialogue is this long two shot where you see both of them in a master shot. And then when he gets into a, a kind of subservient position in the, in the conversation, Kubrick cuts to her point of view, looking down yeah. at him where he's got this light in his eyes and he just looks terrified and, and, and pathetic. And yeah, there's a lot of really kind of expressive cutting like that, that, that Kubrick really wouldn't do later. That is more, more in line with, with more classical Hollywood. But with a very kind of arty bent, it's it's very obvious that that that's what he's doing. It's more expressionist than than uh, a kind of invisible style of classical Hollywood. Well, it's also interesting to see what he gets away with here. You know, he's you know he famously adapted Lolita um, in the '60s, uh, which <laughs> was a monumental achievement, even though he had to leave a lot out that's in the can book. Can you believe? But can you believe they made a film of Lolita? Yeah, um, but. He's he's pushing boundaries here, where it's 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 little things. But um, speaking of that, the the couple, um, there's the first time we see uh, Marie Windsor, she's on a bed and she's kind of leaning down and a heaving cleavage, which you wouldn't get in a movie in the fifties. Like he he really kind of snuck that in in a way. It seemed like like he. He put her in this dress that when she's standing up and is, is looking, you know, whatever, you don't really notice. But he would frame her to really accentuate and make it very uh, lewd. and. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of, like, the opening of, of Psycho, which is uh, a film that, sh- that shows influence of the killing in a couple of other ways. But um, that's not important right now. But uh, Psycho opens with Janet Lee basically in a bra, which was, you know, shocking for 1960. There's also a toilet in there. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a couple of, of interesting sexual things that just kind of go go unremarked in the film, but but are there if you pick up on them. There's uh, one of the gang members is has uh, like a homosexual love interest in in Sterling Hayden and gets rejected, and that whole plot line is almost entirely absent from the film. You just kind of pick up on it that. Uh, you know, there's like one scene where he asks Sterling Hayden to, to go away with him, but it, you know, it doesn't initially seem romantic. And then later in the film, you see that he's at the crime where he's not supposed to be, and he's drunk out he's of his mind. Really drunk, yeah, yeah. Then uh, there's also just kind of the the nature of Elisha Cook's dysfunction with his wife. Like, is it uh, that he is impotent? Because that is is kind of implied, or is it just that he's Elisha Cook and she is much bigger than him and much more vivacious, and he's the little guy? Sure, yeah, um, yeah. There, there are all these kinds of things on the undercurrent that um, I really, you know, wish I could. I wonder what this was, uh, how this movie was taken when it came out in in '56. Like, I mean, it had enough high a high enough profile that uh, that Kirk Douglas hired him to, to do Paths of Glory. Sure. Um, but all the radical stuff in this, was that picked up on initially, do you think? By, I mean, I it, th- it, it, you know, it's hard to gauge. But. The late 50s in, in Hollywood, the studio system is just in the beginning of collapse, and things are just shooting off in all kinds of different directions. Yeah. Something like this uh, it has, was a big budget for Kubrick. Uh, his first two features had like a tenth of the budget of The Killing, but even you know by 1956 standards, this was a, a, a minuscule budget for sure. a film. 
uh, Sterling Hayden was, was probably the biggest star in it, and he, you know he was not a big star. Like his his best movie prior to this is uh, Johnny, Johnny Guitar. Guitar. Which is a, a fantastic movie, and I promised a listener that I would mention Johnny Guitar uh, when we talked about the killing. Do you want to? We can do a timeout here and just talk about Johnny Guitar because that movie. We'll we save, should. We should save it for another okay. show. We'll talk about Johnny Guitar. <laughs> I but it's, love it's Johnny Nicholas Guitar. Ray's western with Joan Crawford, and it is one of the great movies of the 1950s. It's one of the best westerns ever made. Anyway, uh, Sterling Hayden is Sterling Hayden's like a poor man's Robert Ryan, and Robert Ryan's a poor man's Robert Mitchum. Sure. So you're like you're like two degrees removed from superstardom, uh, but which works for this movie? No, like, it, it's, it's great. perfect. It's great. I yeah. I love Sterling Hayden. I love all three of those guys, and they all bring you know different things to the role. But he's not like a megawatt star, sure. by any means. The other revolutionary thing that I mentioned in the uh, in the intro is is that cutting up of the chronology of the heist, which the last third of the movie is dedicated to this heist. But you'll get. The beginning of the heist from each participant's perspective, and then the movie will go back a, a day or earlier that morning to show you the next person and show how things play out. And it's a—it's it's not all, all all you know carefully calibrated by this narration that announces the time and the day and what the person is doing. And it, it's it's like there's a voice of God saying that it's seven fifty seven thirty on a Tuesday and uh, Sherry can't sleep. And what, well, what's interesting about the, uh, about it here is that that device has been used time and again after this movie, and I'm sure there's there are movies that did this before, prior to this, but um, here it it flows so naturally, even though it's kind of herky jerky in its timeline. If you had to like chart it or something, but like you know, even in something like Pulp Fiction, which is you know, famous, fabulous movie that does the same kind of thing. In that, it feels more like a stylistic device than it does here, where it actually, if Kubrick just showed this straight through um, with the heist and, and it just going out like, you know, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, um, it wouldn't be as effective. And this, but but this feels very natural. He actually cut it that way. I was reading the uh, the liner notes from my DVD of The Killing, uh-huh. and uh, it notes that. Uh, after preview screening, uh, the studio urged him to to recut the film so that it flowed chronologically, uh-huh. and so he did that and didn't like it at all. And it, it could, you know convinced him that that the best way to tell the story was chopped up like this. I'm I'm sure of it. it. It's it's really wonderful. It's really well done. Yeah, and I think you know it kind of fits in, into my conception of what the film was about thematically. Like it it seems to me that that the movie that we are watching is a reconstruction of events by Sterling Hayden's character after, when he's in jail mm. as he's trying to figure out what went wrong. Mm. And he was so careful and had everything so carefully planned, everything down to the minute. And there's two possible things that go wrong. There's uh, uh Marie Windsor uh, getting involved and, and getting her, her boyfriend uh, to come and kind of screw things up. And that gets, you know, we're going to spoil it. <laughs> that gets that gets everyone killed. Uh, uh, which, by the way, can I can I interrupt for a second? Um, when, uh, when those guys show up and uh, they say, uh, you know, they're looking for Elijah Cook Jr., who's in the kitchen and everybody else is in the, in the parlor. And Speaking they say, of Pulp Fiction, it's yeah, a very similar it's, setup. It very, it very much is. Um, and they, my favorite line in the movie is, is these guys say, uh, 
where's that jerk George? And then right before, and then Elijah Cook Jr. comes into the room, he says, the jerk's right here. And he shoots him, and then everybody dies. Like, that is so awesome. And I wonder, you know, Jim Thompson uh, co-wrote, or wrote some of the dialogue for that. That sounds like a Thompson line to me. Yeah, definitely. definitely. (laughs) But anyway, you were saying. Um, There's uh, uh, Marie Windsor and her boyfriend kind of mucking things up and getting everyone killed. Mm -hmm. Everyone except Sterling Hayden. That could that could happen. That bit of chance that uh, the the sexual inadequacy of Elisha Cook undermining his role in that in the caper uh, that ruins things for Elisha Cook, but it doesn't for Sterling Hayden. So it's not you know a kind of sexual problem that screws up his heist. Uh, it could be the uh, the parking attendant who uh, who annoys Timothy Carey uh, by being nice to him when Timothy Carey is like uh, his job is to shoot a horse. Mm-hmm. to create a distraction for the heist. Uh, and the parking attendant, you know, tries to give him a horseshoe, and Timothy Carey is really rude to him, so he throws the horseshoe to the ground and it sticks in his tire, which means that Timothy Carey can't get away when the police come after him. So it could be, like, the the impoliteness could foil the heist, and, and the racism as as Timothy Carey gets the guy to go away by using the uh, drop of the N-word. Uh, but... That doesn't affect Sterling Hayden either. Both of those things could have happened. The sexual problem, the, the racial politeness problem. Both of those could have happened, and he still could have gotten away. The one thing that screws up Foofy his dogs. heist. <laughs> not even the dog. I'm just kidding. It's that he couldn't find a suitcase at the discount luggage store that had a lock that worked. Yeah. And that's all it was. It's true. Yeah, and that's what I like about this movie is, um, you know, I mean... A lot of heist movies and, and and films noir and stuff like that, you know, there are these perfectly calibrated things. And, and, and one of the joys of watching movies like this is seeing the little tiny things that cause this chain reaction to the ultimate undoing of the, you know, the villain or, or you know, whoever's trying to plot this thing. Yeah, um, and that, that to me is the great thing about the heist genre because it's about the creation of a plan, the execution of a plan, and then the little thing that makes the plan that the plan yeah, didn't account it's for. It's so much, it's so fun. And uh, I don't want to, you know, rag on him too much because I imagine at some point we will get into it in more detail. But this is why I think that, that St- Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven is a terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> uh, I have... Only I've seen like I think I've only seen the last twenty minutes of that. Yeah, it doesn't give you the plan, and then the plan goes right, and they get away with it, and it's over. Yeah, yeah, that's stupid. It's not. A, it's not a heist movie. It's an excuse to hang out with pretty actors. Right. Yeah. I, I hate Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a big fan myself. Is there any part of this movie that rubs you the wrong way or doesn't really work for you? Because there's one thing, and it's very, very minor, um, but it, for me in this movie, the one thing that doesn't feel like it fits is the, the fight that is planned to break out at the bar, which this movie feels very real, and um, everything is naturalistic to a degree. I mean, you know, there's the stylized tracking shots and all that stuff, but that fight... I wish it was more of a knockdown, drag out kind of thing than uh, it turns into WrestleMania, where the guy's shirt gets ripped off and he like lifts the guy on his shoulders and is spinning him around. Like, I mean, it it becomes it becomes more of a farce at that point, which is which kind of takes me out of the whole heist part, which is all this calibrated stuff and all this, you know. Uh, no. But it's very minor. 
I did, I, did, I did not have a problem with that at all. I, I really like that actor. I'm uh, looking up his name. Cola Quariani. Yeah. I think he's great. He's playing uh, Maurice Obukov. I think he's great as a character. Like, I love the scenes with him at the chess parlor. Yeah, he's in the, he's in the, the chess place talking to, to Sterling Hayden in this really thick accent. Really thick accent. I had to rewind accent. a couple of times to kind of get what he was saying. But he's, like, got all of, like, these little philosophical asides. And, you know, it, it's... Uh, I love how the when the cops attack him and they they rip his shirt in half and he's he looks like he's still wearing a shirt because he's covered in so much hair. Yeah, he's a very hairy guy. Um, yeah, I just I just wish that that see that that scene or that moment in the movie seems to be the one thing that harkens more back to the stuff of the forties and fifties than the forward thinking other stuff. Because I wish it was more of a you know. Knockdown, drag it, out. It reminded me of like the wrestler in uh, in the Ed Wood movie. Yeah, Tor Johnson. That's exactly what I thought too. Which yeah. I don't want to be thinking about Tor Johnson when I'm watching Stanley Kubrick's The Killer. I, I will watch anything with Tor Johnson. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I thought it was great. I I I, I thought it worked. I I would I. I could easily see that fight happening in real life where the, the drunken, hairy, bald man, you know, just throwing six security guards around. I would be fantastic. I mean, it wouldn't happen now because they'd pull out, like, guns or tasers or something. Sure. But in 1956. Um, I mean, it, I'm just being devil's advocate here. I'm just trying to find a little, other than that very, very minor thing, I think this movie is, is fantastic. And I think it, it holds up with... Um, you know, every movie that Kubrick made after this was, you know, is considered an absolute classic. And not that this isn't, but The Killing isn't talked about as much no, I as... I don't think Lolita is. Well, okay, but most everything after that, should yeah. I say, um, is, is kind of treated as this, you know, these masterpieces and stuff. And this is, you know, a well-regarded film, but it doesn't get talked about as often as, you know, 2001 or Barry Lyndon or... Yeah, well, it lacks that kind of shocking, transgressive element that a lot of other Kubricks have, like the in uh, like the violence in Clockwork Orange or, or Full Metal Jacket or the big over-the-top star performances that you get in, in Dr. Strangelove or uh, uh, The Shining. It's it's more uh, it's more low-key than those movies. But, it's more like uh, it kind of gets lost a little like Barry Lyndon does. Yeah, but I, I think that that, what I was saying earlier is I, th I think this movie is just as audacious as those other ones. Um, right, but it's not so, like, obviously audacious sure. in the way that A Clockwork Orange is. Sure, sure, absolutely. But, but yeah, it's it's terrific. And uh, the movie he made right before this, his his second feature, Killer's Kiss, is is also pretty good. I don't know if you've seen I, that I haven't one. seen that, no. Um, it's, uh, it's not bad. It's an even lower budget, even more kind of poverty row film noir uh, with uh, uh, kind of a much more uh, obviously expressive camera style. Like there's some, some kind of ridiculously crazy, very artsy shots mm. that he puts into this in this low-budget crime story. Yeah, I'd like but to see it. It's definitely worth seeing. Yeah, I, I've been meaning to, you know, for a while, and I, I definitely should. Um, it's not as intricately plotted and, and, and complete a, a film as, as The Killing is, but... Sure. I, I want to give a shout out to Criterion because I watched this on the the recent I think it was like a year or two ago they they re released this thing um, and it was it's just stunning I mean it, it it looks more like a contemporary black and white film like it just feels it it's just a gorgeous transfer I mean the thing looks beautiful 
So if you can see it through the Criterion, do it. I don't know. I mean, there was that MGM one that came out, you know, a decade yeah, that's, ago. That's the one I have. Yeah. It was fine. It cost me like five bucks. Sure. There you go. <laughs> totally worth it. Totally worth it. Uh, right. Well, uh, with that, that's our discussion of The Killing. Uh, we're going to listen to another Melvin's song here. Uh, we're going to listen to the whole thing. Uh, this song is called Little Judas Chongo, which uh, doesn't have horse in the title, like The Talking Horse, which is the one song we left off. But this song is off the best album ever made, Hostile Ambient Takeover, which I've brought for Sean today so that he can have a Melvin's album on his laptop. So enjoy one of the greatest songs from the greatest band of all time. Thanks, uh, Buzz, Dale, and uh, any bassist that's ever been in the Melvins. If you want to know more about the Melvins, contact me. I, I'll make you a mix. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I've made about, I don't know, 40 Melvins mixes in my time, and I, I spent a lot of time on them. Uh, I have a lot of fun with it. The Melvins, uh, they celebrated their 30th anniversary this year, and a rule of thumb for me, or a rule I live by, is I need to have seen the Melvins live more times than years I've been alive. So... Um, hopefully I don't break up anytime soon or I'll have to, you know, off myself. But, uh, anywho, that would be a shame. It would be a shame. You know what I mean? Like Kurt Cobain, look what happened to him. Think of all the Melvin's albums that Kurt Cobain missed because he, he blew his brains out in 94. You know, he didn't hear either of the songs that we played on today's show. People don't think about these things. They don't they, think about these. I think die. about these things a lot. Um, anyway, next week's show, we're going to be talking about, uh, some gangster stuff. We're going to be talking, it's tying in with the new Luke Besson film starring uh, De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer. It's called The Family. We're not going to see it. 
Probably. No, definitely not. Nah, not going to happen. Not uh, going to not gonna make it out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to talk about De Niro in uh, Once Upon a Time in America, and then we're also going to be uh, discussing The Roaring Twenties. And we're tying in with that, uh, De Niro will be our person of the week, and our Cinema Essential will be films set in the 20s uh, that weren't made in the 20s. Yeah. Because why not? <laughs> so kind of a... Uh, uh... A historical perspective on the 20s. Sure. Kind of putting like the 20s in context. I like it. Um, if you are in New York uh, anytime between uh, now and November something, uh, the Museum of the Moving Image is doing uh, a complete retrospective of Howard Hawks' films. They're doing all 39 of them. Uh, and I just found out about it in the New Yorker this week, and I'm like, why don't I live in New York? This is horrible. Uh, it started last week. Howard Hawks, I've said time and again, is my favorite director of all time. Um, because he made the best movie of so many different genres. You know, like, it, it, he made the best American Western. He made, um, you know, the best screwball comedy. Um, and he made... One of the all, best musicals. One of the best films yeah, are. One of the it's best, crazy. You know, yeah, it's 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 mind boggling, um, and arguably the Big Sleep is uh, the best film noir of all time. I think it's my favorite, yeah. um, and it's he's played, great. He was the most uh, he was the most played director in Metro Classics. I think we it's played true. like six of his movies. We did play the yeah. Howard Hawks got a lot of love from us, um, and so this this thing is going on at the Museum of the Moving Image. Um, Friday, September twentieth, they will be showing the Big Sleep uh, at seven p.m. and uh, it's a movie you could watch a zillion times and never get bored. It's fantastic. When's 20th Century playing? 20th Century is playing Sunday, September 22nd at 2 p.m. I really like that movie. You, you did not like that movie. It's the one Howard Hawks movie I don't like. I, I find uh, Carol Lombard really shrill and annoying in that movie. Yeah, I think it's great. That's fine. I think she's great. I think Farrymore's great. Uh, <laughs> if you are in the Seattle area this week, you should be spending it at the Northwest Film Forum. Friday through Monday, they're playing uh, Le Jolie May, uh, a, a documentary film uh, co-directed by Chris Marker. Uh, then they've also got, uh, on the 14th, a uh, thing about Leonard Cohen. And then on the 16th, uh, on Monday, they're doing a, a whole series of early uh, short uh, silent films, like early narrative films from like the, the various beginnings of... Uh, movies. Movies. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to just pick like... Three movies just now. Well, I, pick, I guess I, I picked did. the I picked the Northwest Film Forum. You picked a, you know, like a whole <laughs> thirty nine film series. <laughs> I picked The Big Sleep out of a pile of thirty nine films. I could actually, I you know, they're also showing Scarface on Sunday. So if I had, if I could, if I could actually go to any of these movies, I would go to the one on Monday because I I really love early early silent cinema. I think those those movies are just fascinating. And, I do too. And. Uh, yeah, to see a whole series of them at once in an actual theater would be would be a blast. It would be a lot of fun. So do it. You live near Seattle. Me? Yeah. No. I can't. <laughs> I can't. Put I your money where your mouth I is. Literally man. can't get out of the house. That's okay. Well, enjoy the wedding, Sean. Thanks. Yeah, I hope your suit gets here in time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, and that's it for us. So uh, as usual, oh, you can find us. On the web at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com, on Twitter at geosandershow, and in the Gmail at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. For The George Sanders Show, I'm Mike, that's Sean. And here is a horse with no name.
Cause there ain't no one born to give you no pain 